We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. It's out with the Champions League and in with the Europa League as Arsenal fans trade German smashing in the goals for German smashing in the turnstiles. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. I am joined, as always, by Paul. You can find him on Twitter, pausing in my pants, hello, pause. woo And we go now to our Fairweather fan at the stadium correspondent, Tim. You can find him on Twitter, at Stilberto. Tim, uh, if you can hear us above... The, the shots fired and the, the flares and the, the grenades. What, what is it like at uh, Ground Zero Emirates Stadium? Um, it's, it's quite different to hear noise inside it. Um, it's been a little while since. Are you okay? Are your ears recovering? Can you hear me, Tim? Just, just about, just about, yes, yeah. Uh, so I'm all getting excited. Pearls, I mean, we we know we know how the media reported it, and I don't want to make light of the fact that I'm sure for some people it was uh, an intimidating and potentially scary environment, and that there was some poor behavior. Um, and obviously, yeah. you could only see what you physically saw and of what you've heard told to you anecdotally. But since you were there, why don't you tell us how you experienced it um, in terms of the way the the Colm fans behaved, the way the the club managed it, and the experience in the stadium once the game kicked off. Um, it was all quite surreal, really. Um, I, I didn't mind the delaying kickoff so much just because um, I got to have an extra beer. So um, that was all good. But, um, I, you know, I think particularly, you know, people with kids, like a, a 9.05 kickoff isn't fantastic. And I, th- I think really I've got fairly mixed feelings on it. I mean, on one hand, like Cologne basically got the game delayed by an hour, which was 
you know, hugely inconvenient for a lot of home fans who either ended up not going or going at half time because, you know, having to get trains home and things like that. I think what was fairly regrettable was the kind of minority that were trying to charge the turnstiles. And by the way, if you've ever seen the turnstiles at Emirates Stadium, um, good luck trying to charge through those. Um, if I'd have been one of the stewards, I'd have just stood back and said, yeah, I, I want to see you try this. You, you go for it, sir. I, I, want to, I want to see how you think you're going to do this because it's like Fort Knox. You, you can't charge those turnstiles. It's ridiculous. Um, and fairly regrettable as well that they were kind of clambering, trying to clamber over towards the away end and not least because kind of on the southwest corner, that's where the family enclosure is, there seems to be quite a lot of Cologne fans in the family enclosure and it's unclear whether they actually bought those tickets or whether they kind of um, strong-armed them off of, off of like kids and families, I don't know. Um, but, but once inside, to be honest, it, it was fine. I, I didn't feel tense or in danger at, at any point. Um, I didn't have uh, any German fans immediately around me, but that's, I think, but there were loads. So I sit in the kind of front row of the upper tier but there were loads at the back and those are the last seats to sell. The last seats to sell are always because they're the furthest away from the cameras, uh, the back backs of the upper tiers. And that, that was full of Cologne fans. Um, so on one hand, I know, you know, I'm hearing a lot of like Cologne fans saying, Oh, we did, we didn't know that, you know, it's not really in your culture to have mixing of fans. And it's a bit like, I mean, that's just stupid. You, you go, oh, you know, I've been abroad to watch Arsenal dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And you research stuff like that. You don't just, like, assume that footballing culture is homogenous. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, there's a little thing called Google, right? You can look this stuff up quite easily. So I don't buy any of that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think... Like, once inside the stadium and it all, it all kicked off, um, the game, that is, it was fine. And actually, it created a great atmosphere, not just because of the Cologne fans... But there was a response from the home fans as well. And certainly in the first half, it, it's one of the kind of sparkier atmospheres I remember from Arsenal fans at the Emirates. And, and this, to me, brings home the fact that, I mean, it wasn't fantastically managed, I think, by either club. Um, I think, really, Arsenal should have understood that this was a huge game in Cologne's history and not many Arsenal fans were asked about it and they should have just given them um, an increased allocation, which would have gone a long way to alleviating some, but not all of the problems. And I think really in England, we've got to get over this idea that away fans are, are something that you try and shove in the corner and shut up. Um, I, I think increased away allocations, you know, across the board, even in the Premier League would be a great thing because the away fans are the ones that bring the colour, they bring the noise, and, you know, the Premier League aren't stupid. The reason they've come up with these initiatives like making away tickets cheaper, fixing the prices, um, they're now insisting that away fans must be next to the pitch. It's because it adds to, you know, the colour and the spectacle. And, you know, it makes it makes good television as well when someone scores a winning goal away from home and they run into their own fans, um, you know, as happened with between Man City and Bournemouth the other week. Um, Sky and NBC and the rest, they all love that stuff. It's great television. Um, and so I think in England, we've, we've got to catch up really with the idea that having quite a lot of away fans isn't a bad thing and actually it produces a, a, a mutual benefit. But 
largely, I, to be honest, I, I'm I'm more on the. I, I feel a little bit angry at clone fans. Most of the ones I met were were absolutely lovely and clearly there for a good time, but um, clearly didn't like really do their research. And you know, I, I hate to put across this kind of little Englander perspective, but I really think there would have been a different. Uh, tint on proceedings. If we go, to, if Arsenal go to Cologne and bring twenty thousand fans, and we start like wrestling our way into their family enclosure, I I think that might be reported slightly differently. And when you buy away tickets at Arsenal now, we've got to put our names and our passport numbers um, on our tickets. We have to show our passports at the turnstiles, and Arsenal haven't really ever caused any problems in Europe. That was it's like one incident. In nor Paris. on the nor on the pitch for that matter. Well, no, true. But, I mean, literally about 10 guys who can't take their beer um, mm-hmm. got a bit rowdy in Paris in, like, one isolated incident. And now we've got to show our passports at the turnstiles. And we haven't created anywhere near the amount of, of fuss and trouble Cologne caused last night just by being a little bit, um, you know, shall we say, culturally insensitive. Um, but once they were inside, it was it was a great crack, really. But, um, yeah, I think they inconvenienced quite a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um and I hate it when I go abroad with Arsenal and there's just like loads of fans who, who don't care about the city and just go to the nearest Irish pub in the town square and take their shirts off and start singing and, you know, basically messing up other people's towns. Um, and, and that's basically kind of what 20,000 Cologne fans did last night. But at the same time, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a massive disaster or anything. I think there's some learning points, but nothing to... Nothing to kind of cry about, really. Yeah, look, I mean, ultimately, I don't think that we should uh, have nostalgia for or rose-colored glasses for the hooliganism period of English football and violence in football. And I think there's a tendency to talk about the modern game and what the modern game has lost. And there's certainly a, a soul of English football that I, I cannot pretend to be connected to that maybe the game has lost having said that people should feel safe going to a stadium they shouldn't feel that after the game the the most exciting thing about the day is the gang fight that you get into i mean i've seen green street hooligans that's not good stuff um you know and and all kidding aside i mean i i think if that's the culture you long for then i don't know that the game needs you and i i think you're an anachronism Having said that, there's a chicken and egg issue, Tim, I would suggest, where, you know, in the United States, for example, and it's a very different culture. I mean, first of all, it's one huge country. It, there's a lot of things that are different about it, but we don't really have away fans and home fans. You just buy a ticket and you go yeah. to the stadium, and the stadiums are fairly peaceful places, and you could argue they're also fairly antiseptic places to some extent. I don't know that that's always true, uh, but without getting into that debate, I think there is a chicken and egg issue here where... When you put all the away fans together in one area, pen them in, and make them the enemy, it creates the opportunity for antagonism on both sides and creates yeah. a bit of an us-versus-them siege mentality that if they were sprinkled throughout the stadium and just there to enjoy the day and you're all just fans taking in the football, there may be some piss-taking, but not as much hooliganism. Now, I realize there are certain fan cultures, you know, Millwall for one perhaps, in some countries where that may not be the case, but just really quickly to end on this, do you think that to some extent the block system where you put all the away fans in one area penned in, treated like a threat, and bound together in that way, first of all, discourages the more peaceful away fans from going and encourages the more antagonistic ones and maybe uh, uh, hooliganism-oriented uh, ones to attend the match and have that attitude? 
I, I think there was a time where that was true. Um, I, I think that kind of element has gone, certainly in England. I, I think that's a very good point, you know, that the whole social conditioning thing, um, you know, if, if I, I think Pandora's, Pandora's box is open and there's no shutting it now. You, I, I don't think we can go back to, because it used to happen in like the 50s and 60s and, you know, fans intermingled and things like that. But um, it, it, I don't, you know, it, it's not part of English football culture um, and, and kind of part of that's regrettable. But actually, to be honest, loads of people, you know, talk to me, who go to rugby and say, oh, rugby's great. Like, we um we drink beer in the stadium and we sit with the other fans and and it, you know it sounds very nice but I've never I've never been to a rugby match that that image or that that kind of representation has never motivated me to go. There is obviously it's, this is all on a very very fine edge, but actually I kind of like some of that edginess and I kind of like that us versus them tribalism. Obviously not when it goes too far and. I think the vast majority of people in English football stadiums now understand that it's a little bit pantomime, you know, it's it's like inside the stadium, it's, um, you know, we're us and you're all a bunch of wankers and, and the rest of it. But really, when they get outside the stadium walls, they're, they're reasonable people. And, you know, obviously you're going to get some people who take that too far. But I I kind of, I like that, that kind of us versus them edginess. Um, I, I think it's one of the things... There's a reason, right, that it, it's true that football is pretty much the only sport where this has to happen. But at the same time, football's the most popular sport. And that's probably one of the reasons for it, because it's a little bit unique and it does appeal to you on a, on a slightly base level. So, I, you know, on one hand, yeah, I think there is. If, so if you if you kind of intermingled everyone and gave them like strawberries and cream and champagne, um, you'd probably produce a very different atmosphere at a football game. But at the same time, yeah, I, you know, going to away games and stuff, I, I, I quite like that, um, that, you know, that little, mm-hmm. little touch of hostility. Not too much, but just a little pinch. No, there, well, there's no question, for one thing, that it, it, it adds to the atmosphere on the ground. And you made the point, it's definitely a big part of the appeal uh, to the people watching at home as well. So it all has to be stage managed. And I think at the end of the day, what happened with the Cologne fans is a little bit of a one-off and, and it's probably best not to make too big a mountain out of that molehill. It doesn't sound like there were people that were hurt. There are always going to be people that misbehave, but for the one night it can probably be uh, looked beyond anyway. um, All right. Well, that's enough from Tim for a while. I'd say Uh, (laughs) let's actually talk about the game because there's a lot of actually interesting stuff to talk about here. And obviously we'll keep Tim involved, but it's time to bring Paul in unless Paul, do you have a sort of a closing word on, on, uh, the stadium, the the situation with the fans, and and how it should be handled. Who me? Oh, oh. Uh, hey, welcome. No, no, I was just. Yeah, no, I didn't really have anything else that. going on today. No, okay, it was cool. great. Um, okay. I was just going to make the point that, w- like with Olympic fencing, the competitors actually have swords. You're such an and asshole. Yet the, <laughs> and yet the audience listens to them calmly and and watches the sport. Yeah, so there it is. Maybe we should give the footballers swords. Okay, Um, so, Paul, I think in some ways the first half of this game was the nadir of the three three at the back system um, as an attacking impetus in terms of the way we build play. And the the midfield was completely dysfunctional, in my opinion. Um, There were huge swaths of the first half where Pera would swing it to Holding, Holding would have no one showing for him, 
He'd be bracketed by defenders. He'd swing it back to Pear. Pear would swing it to Monreal. He'd have nobody showing for him. And the only way to start an attack was for one of the center backs to carry the ball into the opposition half until somebody could be found, usually a fullback who was pinned against the the sideline with defenders all around him, or the ball had to be kicked long to a forward. There was really no connectivity. Jesus to- Christ, I wait five minutes, or sorry, 15 minutes for my question, and you bloody answer your own question. Ah, fuck. In the all right, well, look, so, so here's my, my question, though, to you, I think, is to what extent do you think the system is, is failing, or to what extent do you think the El Neni Iwobi midfield was responsible for what seemed to be a pretty inept uh, build-up play from midfield? Yeah, this was the que- if I had imagined a question from you, this this was it because every negative you know, element combined into one five minute rant. <laughs> well, no, because it's in a it's a both answer, right? I mean, w- how often does Arson change personnel and system at halftime? Maybe a little more often recently than than historically, but you know he made that switch at halftime because, as you said, this wasn't just a personnel issue; this was a system issue. Uh, there wasn't one, although he brought on uh, Kalasinak, um, the w- this wasn't a, a one-person fix. Um, I agree with your summary of the problems. I mean, the midfield wasn't working. Not that anybody did terribly. It just as a combination, as a setup, it didn't work. You had Alexis dropping into the midfield for somebody to create something from a little deeper in the first half. As Wenger himself said, uh, we were playing too deep. Because, you know, nobody could split the lines with passing. Nobody could create. Uh, we we had lots of possession, but that was possession that a lot of the center backs were trying to do something with because El Nenny did, you know, El Nenny did okay, knocking it from side to side or maybe with a bit of an angle, but no penetration. Iwobi is not a penetrative passer. He wants to run at the box and, and threatened them going backwards while they were sitting in a low block. You know, uh, you could have said before this game started, we didn't have the personnel to play a three, four, three, cause we didn't. Um, I kind of understand why the manager was reluctant to dump the system at the start of the game, but he didn't have the players for it. I mean, we didn't even have the center backs for it. We had enough center backs, but they weren't the right center backs to play three, four, three. Um, Monreal's probably okay. Uh, Purr with some speed the other side of him um, might be functional in this, but he's really not suited to it. Midfield uh, couldn't create anything. I thought Maitland-Niles was extremely quiet on the left, but I think he did okay. But, you know, you need more than somebody who's kind of holding a spot. Um, we just weren't creating anything. And then everything changed as soon as we changed the system in the second half. Um, and, you know, uh, welcome back, uh, four, two, three, one, like a long lost friend. I mean, we, we were praying he'd stick with three, four, three. And now er, at the moment, every time we see four, two, three, one, it's the cavalry arriving and we look far more functional and you kind of realize it isn't really the system. That's our fault. Mm -hmm. It's, it's naivety when we get it wrong and it's balanced when we get it right um and i loved maitland niles in the middle i thought he was we'll come to that super, yeah yeah because yeah. I, I, I think the I switch think at halftime improved yeah. the performance for a lot of players and i i mean paul I, yeah. if when you look at the el and awobi thing to me awobi doesn't look like a central midfielder was a takeaway and also a player who yeah. maybe is a little rusty from not playing much el is a tough one because 
on the one hand, Elneny doesn't do things wrong per se, but yeah. like you pick players at the highest level of the game to influence the game in a positive way. And the one thing that I felt he was not doing enough, certainly in the first half, was finding the pockets of space to make himself available to receive when Holding had it, when Mertesacker had it. And so they were swinging it back and forth to each other, and he was allowing himself to be covered up by the the Cole midfielders. Um, in In your mind... Was this a game that also kind of highlights the extent to which we are missing the right pieces in midfield, especially beyond Ramsey yeah. and Shaka? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so let's take the Maitland-Niles thing. Uh, I don't know how good he really is, uh, but he clearly has some pieces that none of our other players have. The The question, I, Mark, I have over him is his decision-making kind of under pressure. The, the odd screwy ball or the the delayed touch where he gets caught. Now, his athleticism will often get him out of that hole. But if he can be the player I'd like to project onto him in terms of that decision-making, I mean, he brings something we don't have anywhere else in our midfield. Um, And to me, he brought us to life uh, stitching the various parts of our midfield and our attack together uh, for much of the second half. There was a period where Awobi dropped back into playing that other CM alongside uh, El Neni and pushed uh, Maitland Niles forward for about 10 minutes. And we started being just as dysfunctional again and losing the ball again. You really saw what somebody with athleticism, uh, speed, uh, kind of silky, smooth uh, on the ball. He, he, don't get me wrong, he's not perfect, but while he's being good, he's really good. Uh, the worrying thing is you see these moments, not so much in this game, but other games where his decision-making makes you think he's either very young or he's just a little dodgy on some of the decisions he makes. And the fact that Arson doesn't seem to trust him. I mean, even in this game, the obvious call for me was to start him in central midfield. But Arson is frequently starting him as a utility player in other places. Mm-hmm. And, you know... it. You, you know I've been itching to get this guy in our midfield. I would have been I'm surprised we haven't seen him for 15 minutes here for 20 minutes there at the end of a game here or there. Arson obviously has reservations over it, which I find frustrating. I'm sure he has his reasons, but I find it frustrating because he looks like a guy who uh, w- w- with a little bit of fixing up could be the answer, maybe not to our midfield, but to big chunks of our midfield this year. Um, I thought it was was great. I thought it's the first time beyond, you know, even when uh, Ramsey and Chaka look good, they don't look complete. They don't look like a pairing that can handle any situation or pressure or or, uh, handle a... uh, a press. Well, we've we've harped on it before. Team. There's no one to carry yeah. the ball forward in that in that duo. There's no one to to progress the ball with you know through by dribbling or carrying it forward. Yeah, and when I see Maitland Niles in that position, I'm like, oh yeah, there it is. Now, like I say, I'm not saying he's the Messiah. Um, he what you're saying been, is he has the qualities that maybe that midfield is crying out for, but he may not be the finished article yet to where you can depend on him to to execute on a regular basis. Yet or ever, I do. I suspect <laughs> he has a he has a flaw. But when you see him playing, you're like, oh yeah, th- we haven't had a player like that for since when? You know, May- Jack at his best. Um, well, I'd submit was- Santi Cazorla was far superior. But- <laughs> 
re- yeah, rest well, in peace. Yeah, well, he does it differently. He yeah. does it differently. But yeah, when you saw Santi there, we looked like a complete midfield, but he does it differently. So, um, you know, and with Maitland-Niles there, with Alexis doing his thing, pushed further up, Kolasinac so much more imp- uh, impactful. Uh, Theo suddenly made sense on that pitch. He didn't have a great game in either half, but he made sense in the second half. He, he did a lot of runs in behind. He actually got one or two where he got his um, his offside timing right, and he was impactful on both goals, even if it was by uh, by accident. But he, he still had he was in the right place, doing the right things, and made the runs. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look, ultimately, whatever the reasoning, the system wasn't working. And Tim, I guess my question for you, I got a couple of things. First of all, in terms of the failure to be able to progress the ball up the pitch and the sort of sterile domination thing that was going on, do you blame that on the the system in particular or the uh, midfield selection specifically? Um, a little bit of both, uh, to be honest. And I, I know you highlighted it as well on, on Twitter with some screenshots. Every single time one of our centre-halves had the ball, they just they didn't have any options because, you know, Iwobi is not a central midfield player and he's certainly not a central midfield player in a fairly inexperienced team that hasn't really played together before. So, I mean, that really didn't work. Um, I, I think what was interesting, I, I read quite a good article about Elneny today, actually, on a website called License to Rome. And um, they, they were kind of talking up Elneny a bit, actually, and they were saying, you know, he's pretty unspectacular and he's quite unfussy. And in some games, that's not what Arsenal need. But in some games, it is. Um, basically, he was saying there is a bit of a call for Arsenal to have a fairly functional, boring just keeps the possession ticking over type of midfielder um, for the reasons that you guys have, have, have gone into already. Is, is not that he's brilliant at that. It's just we, we lack that so obviously. And uh, what I thought was really interesting uh, was that apparently Elneny hit 10 successful long passes um, last night, which is a change in style for him. And whether that's just because Xhaka wasn't there and he felt that responsibility or whether I think possibly more likely um, the players were just so far apart that he kind of didn't really have That's any choice. That's what I saw. Because, That's 100% what I saw. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He didn't have the the midfielder five yards away from him to play that sideways pass. He either had to go back to a centre-back or, you know, the next player really was 30 or 40 yards away. And it it really it really didn't click. And I think Iwobi and Alexis were kind of getting in each other's way because... You know, Iwobi wants to be in that kind of area of the pitch, and he di- he didn't really know where to be. And you know, one one of the big strengths with Alexis in that kind of inside forward position, and we saw this much more in the second half, is he really likes to combine with the left wing back. He really likes that ball, you know, into the channel between the centre half and and uh, and the full back for the wing back to run onto, so yeah. they can get to the byline and cut it back and. We've seen Nacho do that a few times. We've seen Kolasinac do it several times. And, uh, yeah, I know you were talking about the quality of his cross to Welbeck um, in in the last game against Bournemouth. And, and that's those are kind of... Alexis really enjoys that kind of relationship. And, obviously, he's not going to get that from a right-footed player that isn't a wing-back um, in Maitland-Niles in the first half. So it, it was a little bit on the kind of... The, 
the scatty side really in central midfield and that's that's I, I, I thought that Xhaka might play actually just because of the lack of options because he can't start Wilshire yet because Coquelin's injured and he didn't really have a natural fit which is why I don't think he should have played the 3-4-2-1 I think he should have played a formation that fitted the players he had which he did in the second well, half but yeah, and that, that kind of brings me on to the next point. Now, I'll, I'll let Paul start with this. We can come back to you on it, Paul. I mean, is, is the issue that we're seeing that if, if Arson really wanted to stick with the three four two one this season and if the back three is something he's really committed to, that the piece he had to go out and get was a midfielder to complete that, that squad. That the, This is a squad that was constructed to be a back four squad. That's all he's ever played. And he made a switch in the middle of last season, taking a back four squad to being a back three. And it's not built that way. Now, he does have the luxury, or he did have the luxury of having a lot of center backs. He seems to have been desperate to get rid of them all. But he, he has the luxury of having the center backs um, and potentially the right wing backs. He did go out and get Kolasinac, so that was a step in the right direction. But really the missing piece, whether it's next to Shaq or next to Ramsey, is that guy, a Nabi Keita type, a Kovacic type, a, a, a guy who can be box-to-box with a little more defensive instinct, who can carry the ball out, out of pressure. I realize I'm describing like every great quality of a midfielder, so forgive me if that guy maybe doesn't exist. But but is that really the issue? He does. That, He's Nabi Keita. He is Nabi Keita. Unfortunately, he's going to Liverpool. But so, I mean, is is the issue that there was clearly a missing piece in terms of what's needed in midfield for this system to work, and we didn't go out and get it, and now we're seeing that no matter how we try to line this all up, it's the missing piece in midfield that prevents the system from really excelling for us? Yeah, um, but uh, and I think you've done a, a really good job of outlining that. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we're, to be honest, we'd be missing that missing piece in the four two three one two over the space of 55 uh, games because we have identified a midfield pairing but not much beyond that that operates and but you, you get the extra man in midfield right i mean you have the extra body there so you can at least have some control in the middle of the park that we don't currently have i'll grant you but we don't have the wing backs either i mean we saw that last night right nobody's injured and we were scratching our head you know we had to play bellerin a second time yeah um and uh, Maitland-Niles on the left, and people say, well, we could, you know, we can play Monreal there, but Monreal will get caught out as a wing-back over, if he's to do an extended uh, stint at left wing-back, there are going to be teams he plays against where he doesn't have the speed for it, and, you know, it's a long season. Uh, that'd take quite a bit out of him, and then who do you put in at, at left centre-back? It's not... We have basically one and a half, sorry, two and a half cent, uh, left wing, sorry, two and a half wing backs. We have Bellerin. Post. Yeah, we have Kalasinac, and we kind of have Monreal for a few games, but you wouldn't want to have him there for half a season. So we don't have the wing backs. I would say we don't have the center backs. You w- you'd want to have he- kept Gabriel if you're playing three at the back and let go of probably Chambers because you got holding. Um, so I don't even think, we, you know, I think there's three different areas of the pitch where we don't have the right players. And then we've too many forwards. Um, so, and, and that's, you're a, seeing the repercussions there, by the way, just to, to cut across you, because that's what people like about me is, um, yeah. you know, with someone like Awobi who we were purring about at the start of last season and was one of the first names on the team sheet. But now that there's no room for him in this system, and he doesn't really look like a central midfielder. He's kind of lost his way. And this is a player that we're in danger of kind of losing a little bit in terms of his development because there's no clear fit for him in this system now with, with the way that the squad's constructed. 
Yeah, I think the one thing that's that's right. I think the one thing we've achieved over the last game or two is got people off the drug of three four three, and <laughs> quiet quietly not admitting they're kind of looking for four two three one to come back. I, I think a mixture of the two sounds good, but I think we'll pretty soon be just four two three oneing it, um, because the issue at the end of the day is balance awareness. Um, uh, uh, avoiding na- uh, naivety and a a strong, capable midfield, and it's it's we can be exposed at three four three when when teams know how to play against us or how we'll play. So and Colton did find spaces. They they didn't execute very well on the counter, but they did find spaces. And I think you know instead of Shaka turning the ball over with bad passes, which has kind of been a feature of his game this season, what we had was just the center backs shuffling it back and forth and then eventually kicking long when there were no options. I, I don't think that's a whole hell of a lot better. Um, Tim, and not a lot yep. of pace in that back, in our center backs. I mean, stating the obvious there, but that's an exposure when, when your wing backs are pushed forward. Uh, and, you know, whether, whether you put Kishelny, Kishelny and Monreal in the, in the mix would have been good, but it's still not great. It's, it's really Kishelny who's got pace. Um, so Mustafi and, you know, I put the pace of our team, Kishelny's the fast center back, Monreal and Mustafi are probably pretty similar. Then Holding and Chambers are considerably slower. And then Purs, uh, obviously the slowest of them. We, we don't have a lot of pace in our center back. So, uh, you lose one of our two or three faster center backs. You're exposed with the three at the back. Especially as they start to push forward to try to cover the space that the midfielders aren't yeah. coming back to, to occupy. I mean, when when you get that disconnection between the de- defenders and the midfielders, the defenders have to carry the ball forward. If the ball is turned over, there's more space in behind them, and then it starts to look like the back four did for a while. So, Tim, I mean, the squad doesn't seem to be set up to give us a lot of options in midfield to play this system. We switched it at <coughs> halftime. Hey, quick, quick, uh, quick laugh at Ospina. Does he have a little bit of the Fabianskis and Minonis about him, or was that just sort of an unfortunate situation for him all around? This, this kind of sums a speeder up, I think, because rarely, he, you know, the, the Olympiakos goal accepted. Do you th- Basically, his, his quote-unquote mistakes always divide opinion. They're very rarely, other than the, the aforementioned Olympiakos one, absolutely glaring. There's always room for, yeah, but, you know, it's, it, it's really weird. And, but I kind of tend to think if that keeps happening then there's probably a bit of a problem with the goalkeeper. And that's not to say like he's a ridiculous oaf or anything like that. But He's about I mean, two have, feet have tall he... from looking at the squad picture. I mean, he comes up to about yeah. Matt Macy's belly button. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that's a bit of an issue that he is a bit small. And uh, you kind of saw that when the shot lobbed over him. Like he didn't, I mean, he didn't put an arm up because he knew he was beaten. Whereas, um, you know, Petr Cech probably would have taken that down on his chest. Um, well, so and, and by the way, he, I mean, the, the, the offside flag winds up saving him, but that's a stonewall penalty he gives away from letting a fairly easy ball yeah. get away from him. He, yeah. he catches it. He tries to catch that it a second That was the bigger time. one for me, to be honest. Yeah. Well, what, that's one of the things he does is that I don't like is he parries the ball outwards and not to the side quite a lot. Yeah. It, it's a frustrating one because he actually does really well to sense the danger and come off his line, which is something I don't think he's always very good at. I tend to think he and Czech can be a bit hesitant at that, but he senses the danger, comes out really well, but then 
the clearance is pretty poor. Um, you should be looking, if not to kick it into touch, at least get it over to the touch line, um, even if it stays in play. Um, but at the same time, it, it's a it's a pretty decent finish, um, in fairness. So it, it's kind of one of those, it's a, it's a bit of a mistake. And I think he makes lots of a bit of a mistakes mm-hmm. without... But, but rarely, you know, an absolute, oh, my God, that was a clanger kind of thing. Um, I'm not his biggest fan, but, yeah, I, I thought that was... He just has weird technical hiccups, too. I mean, he steps behind his line. He backs into his goal. Yeah. He he likes to save with the wrong hand from time to time. Yeah, um, yeah. He does that little hitch, that hit. I mean, it's it's almost like a crutch that some goalkeepers do when the shot's stung at their palms, they kind of bang it down to the ground. You know what I mean? Instead yeah, of just catching yeah. it. Yeah, he does that. And he does that a lot. Also, his his kicking is generally quite poor because he, yeah. he struggles to reach the halfway line. Well, you know, as a, as a also short and weak person, I have some sympathy <laughs> for him there. Um, but do you know so, what I mean? None of, none of these are, are massive things, but all put together, yeah. It's, yeah, they, it's they don't bad. add up to a guy you have tons of confidence in in a big moment. So speaking of guys, now, we're not now in, it, in. It, Just a quick word in his defense. I mean, it is his first game of the season, yeah. and it was, a kind, yeah. it was a slow start from our side, and there was the whole Cologne shit. So that's why the second mistake was a little bit more troubling for me. I mean, I agree, but I will say, if you're the backup keeper, this is your life, right? <clears throat> you have to absolutely shine when, when you get the chance because – you know, you're, you're going to get infrequent opportunities to play. Um, yeah, but, I you know, um, y- 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 well, gravity is gravity. A bigger issue is Rob Holding, and, and we made the switch to a back four at halftime. It was the right change. I don't think anyone can argue with that. But, Tim, in terms of where Rob Holding's career is going, he seems very well on to the Callum Chambers path of having his confidence destroyed and his career killed before it gets started. These young players come in and they show talent. I mean, Chambers came in and he impressed right away and everyone was purring about him, and it wasn't long before we were throwing him on the scrap heap. Um, there's maybe a little of that happening with holding. He didn't look confident. I don't think he played particularly well. Do you think this is a combination of us overrating him and us not putting him in a position to succeed? Do you put more of the burden here on the manager and the club in terms of what's happening to him? Where do you think holding goes from here? It's a little bit of all of those things. And you always expect to dip with younger players. A lot of them, you know, they come into the team, they've got nothing to lose. Life's great. Um, you know, and then and then you, they get a bit of a reputation. And people start to notice them, and it's you know it's like the difficult second album. You know, when you record the first one, you don't know where it's going, and and all of a sudden it's successful, and you're riding the crest of a wave, and then you've got to sit there and write the second one. And my first one attention. was horrible, by the way. So I just short shortcut. <laughs> you know, just make the first one bad. Work for me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my new EP is out next month. No, um, but. Rob Holding, yeah, I mean, of course, everyone always overrates anyone new and anyone young. As fans, we will always overrate those players. Go back and look at Arsenal.com's Player of the Month for August for every year. It is always, always, always a new signing, or if we haven't had a very busy summer in the transfer market, it's usually a young player that's come in because, you know, new is different and, 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 and that means it's great. Um, so there, yeah, there probably is an element to which we overrated uh, last season. But he was re- he was genuinely very good at the end of last season, and to some extent, this is to be expected. How we handle it and how he handles it will be absolutely crucial. But Rob Holding's got two things um, that are kind of gone against him here. First of all, he's a young player in the Arsenal team, and quite a lot of our young players. 
I think quite a lot of young players in general go this way. They start on the crest of a wave and have a bit of a dip. He's also um, a central defender in Arsenal's team. And this is an incredibly well-trodden path where um, I remember Pascal Sagan's first six games for Arsenal. Everyone thought he was amazing. I, I really remember we won, I think, six of our first seven games and everyone was going, this Sagan's amazing. And, uh, you know, Senderos looked brilliant in his first few games. Giroud looked brilliant in his first few games. The Chambers, there's so many of them, and not necessarily just young players. Um, even even Scalacci looked pretty decent in his first five or six games for Arsenal. But then that, you know, we traumatised them when that, that realisation hits that, um, oh, my God, the other team are breaking and it's just me. Um, I, I'm... You know, these guys are coming in with baseball bats and I'm stood here with a spoon. And um, and it, it damages players, not not just young ones, even experienced ones like Sebastian Scalacci. Um, you know, look at what we do. He's been very vocal that. since leaving the club, by the way. It's sort yeah. of pinning the blame on, on being a defender at Arsenal. But exactly. And, but even look at Sol Campbell walked out at half-time. Sol Campbell is one of the best English centre-halves ever. And we drove him to literally leave the stadium at half-time. William Gallas is a, was a brilliant, brilliant central defender um, for his country and for several clubs. Look at what we drove him to. You Crying know, on the meltdown. pitch. <laughs> exactly. So, he, you know, basically, if you're a central defender at Arsenal, you, you're probably, you know, this is why I love Lauren Koscielny, because, like, how on earth he sleeps at night, I don't know. Because most Arsenal centre-halves don't pussy. manage that. <laughs> and kind of the same with Pear, you know. And Pear got slaughtered a bit and still doesn't really get the credit he deserves. But if you come into that environment also as a young player as well, um, you know, that's that's double bubble really. And um, yeah, you know, it's, it's difficult not to worry a little bit about holding. How he comes out of this little period will be absolutely key, um, really. I, I hope in a couple of months we're just looking back on it as a normal glitch you get with young players. But at the moment, I think he just has to be kept out the firing line, not least because this team's just so dysfunctional, um, really. And it's 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 not a place for kids, um, quite frankly. And until it is, we we should probably try and minimise um, the game time of, of some of the younger players, I'm afraid. Yeah, I mean, look, central defence is an unforgiving area. You make a mistake and it costs you immediately. And it's why I think it's an area where experience is more important than talent at some level. And you're almost better off with middling 28, 29-year-olds than brilliantly talented 18-year-olds. Yeah. Johnny yeah. Evans has become hot property this summer and he's you know he's he's exactly what you're describing he's a good defender that's 29 years old and Arsenal and Man City were fighting over him. Yeah and and I mean you look at John Stones and what he cost and it was well chronicled and the growing pains he's going through it's not because I don't think Stones is a talented player it's a position that just you have to have experience and when you move in with new new partners and your partners are constantly shifting and your system is constantly shifting and then oh by the way you're putting one-on-one defensive positions on a regular basis you're just going to get brutalized and it's happening to, to holding and the hope is that he will be able to come back from this and it'll be interesting to see what the manager does because by shipping off Gabrielle and clearly not trusting Chambers um, holding is in line to be a critical player for us one way or the other so He's just going to have to get his head down and figure it out. Um, Paul, the, the impact Kolasinac made is, is clear. Uh, he, he was dangerous. He was effective. He scored a stunning volley. 
I guess, you know, I, I cannot help but want to bash my head into the table and I hear the people listening, shouting, do it, do it, um, uh, at the thought that neither he nor Lacazette were given the start against Liverpool. Um, but you just look at the impact he makes and it's it's immense. And I realize also there was a change of system which helped, but why don't you just sort of give me your appraisal of, of uh, Kolasinac on the day and, and just how much this player is impressing you? Well, look, he's a force. I mean, he's not just a physical force. There, there's an animal energy about the guy. Uh, he he uses that to get to the byline, and, and he's very. He doesn't just get there and put a ball in somewhere. He always does something useful with it. Um, I, I there's also, I think, you know, you need a few real hombres in your team, and we generally don't have too many. Sometimes we don't have a, a, a single, you know, kind of a physical force on the pitch or, or, or it doesn't seem that way. And when you see him run up the field and basically do a rugby handoff, palming off some player, I mean, the, the crowd gets behind it, but the team's got to get behind something like that, too. So um, but right from the get go, right from minute one of the second half. Uh, there was a different energy. We pushed right up. Now we changed systems uh, and the midfield was far more functional. But stuff started to work. And, um, you know, well, I, to me, he reminds me a little bit of Paldi and how he started with us. Um, As and, in Lukasz Podolski? Yeah. Yeah, that one. Uh, uh, yeah. And I'm just, maybe it's just because of the league he came from. Um, so the... Uh, and, and to Tim's point, he was what? I think he was our player of the month in August, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's my only cautionary thing so far. But Despite he not playing one of our August matches. <laughs> true. Uh, but he looks like a man who's not for moving. So uh, I'm pretty hopeful that this is hold. this will hold out. Plus, he's our only left wing back unless you're really going to double duty Nacho. So you know, the, our, our eggs are in this basket. The reductive analysis of him is just that he's a beast because he's a big guy, but he has real pace, real quality. He did that one. Was it a pirouette or whatever, whatever you want to call that when, yeah. what game was that? Was that the, the Lester game where he did the full 180 spin to get away from attack? Sounds right. And then, I mean, he, you know, he plays in really clever and thoughtful balls when he gets to the end line. He, um, he has a good touch. Obviously, you can see that he can finish, and I think his size makes it the analysis of him a little reductive, but he's a very uh, elegant player in some ways, which you wouldn't expect just to look at him. I, I think a player who can be very elegant, but so for some reason is dividing opinion these days, Tim, is Alexis Sanchez. He scored a typical Alexis Sanchez stunner. Um, it was great to see a player that probably needed something to lift him through what has been probably personally a challenging time for him. And I think he's someone for whom his emotions impact what you get from him on the pitch. He is a guy who is capable of producing the brilliant, but when the brilliant doesn't come off, the rest of the stuff is pretty poor. Um, he's a giveaway merchant. He is a giveaway merchant, but you know, I mean, he's also sliding in incredible little through balls to, to overlapping wing backs and playing great chip balls and scoring wonder goals. Tim, I have a theory that we have never gotten the best from Alexis other than the period when he played center forward. And I know he's had prodigious periods for the club before, but that his worst qualities are are most emphasized when he's playing out wide or behind a striker. And his 
his best qualities are limited, whereas when he's at center forward, uh, he can pop up in different places. If he loses the ball, it's not in as dangerous a situation. He's more capable of influencing the game with his attempt to pull off difficult skill without hurting us when it doesn't come off. I mean, has Alexis, has his contribution dipped, or is he another one who maybe isn't being done a lot of favors by the way he's being utilized? Um, I don't think it has, actually. I, th- I think... Um... I think creatively he's he's much more part of the game now, and as you say, like sometimes there are elements of that that are frustrating, but quite often there's not as well. And quite often he's really capable of, of threading a pass in a way that probably only Özil um, can match in the current squad, and um, it, it's it's a valuable commodity. He doesn't always get it right, and it's quite annoying when he doesn't, but. I, I actually think, I, I like you, I, I really liked him at centre-forward last year, and I, I think we should have persevered with it a bit longer. Now we've got Lacazette, I'm a bit more relaxed about that. But I, I do like um, Alexis and Ozil in these inside-forward roles. I think they hit a kind of happy medium. And the other added benefit is they keep those two players nice and close together. I really like the fact that Alexis and Ozil are kind of on the same line of the team. You know, if you, you call it, it, it's a three-four-two-one. I like the fact that they're in the in the two um, together because they have the choice to combine, but also, you know, they're a little bit detached. Um, they're a little bit taken away from the structure, uh, so they don't have to worry about being, uh, you know, midfielders or wingers. Um, they they have a fair bit of freedom, and I I quite like that. I mean, I, yeah, there were particularly in the first half, there were elements of Alexis's game that were really frustrating. Again, I think honestly, I think most of that, some of it was like I said earlier, Iwobi kind of getting in his way, and Maitland Niles just not being a natural wing back, and part of it was just the fact that he's not match sharp, um, and he's probably not going to be for another couple of weeks. But he, see, he seems to be getting there slowly. We've also talked um, a lot, by the way, that, that Giroud up front is not necessarily the best fit for him specifically. No, no. No, exactly. And, you know, I, I think Walcott and Alexis have a great partnership when Walcott's out wide, like properly out wide, um, but not so much when they're kind of together in that two behind the striker. I mean, largely because that just does not suit Walcott at all. He doesn't know how to play that position. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I thought... I don't read too much into it. I, I was pleased with Alexis's contribution at the end of last season when we changed shape um, and we went to that three-four-two-one. I didn't like him quite as much on the left wing, but I like this kind of happy medium inside forward with a wing back going outside him. I think that works quite nicely. Um, and yeah, I, I thought um, the the thing is right. No, nothing in his manner has changed whatsoever. He he will always be. You know he will always be an expressive demonstrative player that is always who he has been it's who he was at Barcelona it's who he is when he plays for Chile and let me tell you there is no club that will come close for him um, to what playing for Chile means to him and he's exactly the same when he plays for Chile he throws his arms up he's on his haunches he you know um, and but because of the situation he's in Arsenal that's going that's going to get really really scrutinized this year and I think that's going to get a little bit tiresome as well um, but I mean, personally, I've, I've never had a problem with him being expressive and demonstrative. I think the problem has come uh, with him being the only one. There was actually um, an incident, I think, at the beginning of the second half where 
Iwobi, it wasn't for the goal, but Iwobi, I think, slightly overcooked to pass to Alexis. Um, and Alexis kind of turned around and said something to him. And Iwobi he, he told him. He did do it for the off. goal, also, by the way. <laughs> he did, he did. But Iwobi turned around and, and shouted, fuck off at him. Um, and, and I'm perfectly okay with that. I think that that's kind of how it should happen, you know? Yeah. Like, if you've got one guy, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with Alexis. Um, you know, making his feelings known when a pass isn't right. And I'm perfectly happy with the guy telling him to shut up. I, I think that's fine. Like, um, it, I find it really weird how kind of, how how precious a lot of Arsenal fans are about this. I don't think the problem is that we have Alexis doing that. The problem is that nobody's shouting back at him. I mean, when you look back at, at the, you know, I know everyone always harks back to the Invincibles all the time. You know, when that dressing room had Sol Campbell, Jens Lehmann, Dennis Bergkamp, Patrick Vieira, and Thierry Henry pouting away in it, what did people think was happening? You know, they, they were like, they were having it out with each other. But the difference was when Henri kind of did his pouty, oh, that was a bad pass. You know, Bergkamp or Campbell or, or whoever was telling it was shouting right back at him. And then it's fine and then it's done. You know, obviously you don't want that to linger on. And to become a big thing, but you know, in the heat of the moment, that was a shit pass. Shut up and fuck off. That's fine. It's all dealt with then. Kind of better well, well, Tim, you wouldn't really have it with a twenty-year-old kid telling a twenty-nine-year-old no. Thierry Henry to go and fuck himself. No, no, and and uh, yeah, I, I must admit, towards the end of Henry's time, when the team became much younger, I do think he became a bit of a disruptive influence, and I, I was. A little bit miffed with Sanchez at one point when he was having a go at Maitland-Niles, and it's a bit like, yeah, but he's 20 and he's playing left wing back. You know, he he's probably earned a little bit of understanding there. But generally speaking, I don't mind him shouting the odds, and I I think Iwobi's perfectly entitled to tell it to shout the odds back. I think that's that's fine. That's I think that's relatively healthy in a team in what let's not forget is competitive elite sport. As we're on this kind of topic, did you see any significance in Bellerin's celebration and the kind of kiss and the badge kind of thing and the this one's for you guys to the crowd? Did you catch that? I, I did, yeah. I, I hope so. I really hope so because, you know, I think I think he did ask to leave this summer and, and obviously we got into a strong enough contract um, that we were able to say no. But, you know, that that's obviously a worrying um, a worrying situation, not least because Arsenal's team is, is getting quite old, particularly in the spine. There's, as Clive often says, there's not many kind of between 21 and 28 anymore. Um, and quite a few of them are going to need replacing very, very quickly. And um, to lose a player like Bellerin on top of that would, would just be, you know, awful, really. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully. Well, all right. I mean, look. Alexis gets the goal. We take the lead. We then uh, uh, get a goal from Bellerin that was set up quite brilliantly, although maybe a little fortuitously, and I thought Theo did well to get the shot off in the first place. And overall, it winds up being a fine result. But we did have some interesting things towards the end of the game. I mean, for one thing, I definitely think we saw the benefit of of switching to three in midfield um, away from the back three to the back four. And, you know, we'll come to the Chelsea game in a moment, but I think we, we have a couple few little takeaways from from this game still to get to and one of them is just Jack Wilshire getting on the pitch I'm not going to come to Reese Nelson I don't think his involvement was sufficient to warrant dissecting it given that we're approaching the hour mark unless you guys really feel a burning desire to go into you know eight minutes where he hardly touched the ball um 
And, and Paul, I think you already covered Maitland-Niles when he moved into midfield pretty well. I think he impressed, and we can certainly keep that topic open for the future, as I'm sure we'll see him against Brighton, maybe even in his preferred midfield spot. But as far as Jack Wilshire, um, I don't know. I mean, people really want him to be the Jack of old. I think there is a lot of sentiment, especially among England Arsenal fans, which is totally understandable, as you know he was someone that there was big hopes of him being the future of England and the future of Arsenal. Um, a lot of people wanting to see the best of his contribution, but what I saw as a player whose touch isn't as crisp, and understandably, I mean, he's not match fit, but the ball gets away from him a little more than it used to. When he tried to make those sort of trademark runs through midfield, his his second touch was heavy and it was taken off him. I thought the dummy that led to the goal, you could argue that it was, it was clever, but I thought it was kind of a punt to let someone else take it. I don't know that it was really on. It just kind of worked out, and he had a lot of space in the box to run into. What was and your I take? I think it would have been on his right foot too. Yeah, well, so either way, I mean, I'm I'm struggling to see a player there that that can be the guy that makes a difference for us in midfield. I realize it's very early in just his first initial contributions. How did you feel seeing Jack back on the pitch for Arsenal? Uh, well, emotionally, I liked it. I oh, mean, yeah, I, th- yeah. I thought I thought he did great, kind of you know, c- considering everything. But I don't think you can read a lot into it. By the time he came on. We had he had a lot more space than he would in a highly competitive game where he's to grasp something out of a small amount of uh, of uh, wiggle room. So uh, I don't think you can. This this was a nice run around from Jack. It was nice to see he did a few nice things, but he had space and he had time. Uh, he was also freed up in that he was basically in the kind of the attacking midfielder spot, so little re- very little responsibility. Um, I agree with you. People are getting way ahead of themselves on him being the answer. Uh, he's he's basically played about a few minutes more for us than Reese Nelson did last night, and we're not judging him. Um, so yeah, this is more about us than him. Uh, I, I'll still go back to uh, Wenger saying uh, two seasons ago he needs a good seven or eight starts before you can judge his performance had this been a much tougher game I think we'd have to be explaining how he hadn't had a good performance and making excuses for him uh, and the manager keeps saying you know he hasn't got his burst back yet from training etc so if he had a great game towards the end of last night if that's what people think that was more about the game than about Jack I'm not knocking him uh, and uh, if anybody's seen my profile pic, uh, uh, I'd be the happiest man on it. Well, maybe third or fourth happiest man on the planet if he came back and and was the Jack of old, uh, of very old. Um, but, geez, uh, cool your jets here. I think we have a better chance of Maitland-Niles making, making a big impact on our midfield this year than Jack for yeah. all sorts of reasons we could list off. There's a lot of wish casting. I mean... To go from getting a substitute appearance in a game that's basically won against a team that had to give us space to a guy that can fix a midfield that looks totally dysfunctional at the highest level in the Premier League, um, I think there's a long way to go from that. And, you know, I think you also have to put it in the context of what he did for Bournemouth last season, which I don't I don't think he exactly tore up trees there. So, I mean... You know, staying yeah, fit is part I, he, of it. But, I think know. he gets slammed for Bournemouth too, and I think that's unfair. I mean, as a first season back, barring the the end of the season where he got injured, um, you know, a lot of people get given a break for a first season back. Um, and so, you know, he did okay at, 
at Bournemouth. So you'd want to see a second season before you really start judging them there. Yeah. Not that a lot of people get a lot of seasons. But I'm very much in the I'm from the show me state. I'm not really. But uh, as they say in Missouri, you know, he's got to show it first before we all haven't we done this season after season? I love Jack. The good thing is it's not a long time till that, that uh, Carabao Cup game comes up. And so, I mean, in theory, he could have another game within a week to get on the pitch. And I think, you know, it's not six weeks till we see him again. And that that could create some momentum. If he's going to take his chance, this could be an important period for him. Yeah. Yeah, but but I'm just I'm just going to park it even for the first half of the season. I don't care if he has a good game. Mm-hmm. Um, that's even that's not the point with Jack. Jack's had good games for us in the past, and it hasn't amounted to a good season or a good half a season for us. So, just stay calm, everybody. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's definitely some jumping to wanting him to be what I don't think he clearly looks like he is yet. And we'll wrap up on this uh, for this game, and then just quickly touch on Chelsea. Uh, because by the time this pod comes out, it'll be less than 24 hours until that match. So, Tim, I think, you know, an- another takeaway from this, you know, will be the continuing debate about whether the back three should be done now, um, whether we need that extra body in midfield more than we need that extra body in the back in the back line. Um, but another one is Theo Walcott. And while I don't think he was terrible in this game in the way that he can be, I think both he and Giroud looked a little out of place in this system. And to be fair to them, they were playing with some guys that aren't necessarily first choice, an entire second choice midfield uh, midfielder playing left wing back. But do you see, I mean, Theo in particular having basically no role to play if, if we are going to stick with the system? Yeah, I, I think that's quite obvious by now, but he, he has no role to play in this system. He just doesn't know how to, to do that kind of because there are a couple of ways of doing it right um playing in one of those two behind the center forward you either the, the way kind of Welbeck does it is he's like a second striker that comes from deep um you know he doesn't play it like a number 10 he plays it like a striker that just makes the run 10 seconds later um and that's the mold really that Theo should be looking for but I I just don't think he's really got the brains for it Fair and um Quite, quite frankly, that there's one area of the pitch where Theo is absolute dynamite, and that's that little corridor of space between the centre half and the fullback. Um, you put him there, and usually there's trouble um, for the opposition. It's where all his best moments come from. The channels and this yeah. formation, yeah, and this formation just doesn't see him get there enough, or not, or not in a way where he receives the ball. You know front on goal kind of thing he's he's sometimes he's there or thereabouts but you know he's receiving the ball with his back to goal and he's knocking it wide to Bellerin like it, he doesn't get facing the goal in that channel that's where he's he's really explosive and mm. he just doesn't get there enough um but <clears throat> sorry excuse me um but not excused. one <laughs> one thing actually I was looking at the squad last night and I was thinking that the, the kind of problem with ditching the wing backs really is we don't have a lot of wide players anymore um with with Chamberlain gone and I know you know Alexis Sanchez and Iwobi play kind of from wide um but if Arsenal do go back to a kind of three up front um then Theo's got a good chance because we don't have anyone that creates natural natural width now that Chamberlain's gone um and as you guys were alluding to earlier, that also means we don't have many dribblers um, without Sanchez. And, and those are two areas where I think as well the squad is is quite short. So 
it, it's a really weird one for Theo. If we persist with this, he just has no place here. And yeah. he seems to be getting into Kieran Gibbs territory where he just needs to move for his own sake and do something else. But if we suddenly go back to a kind of three up front, he, he's bang back in there. Um, so it's, it, it's, re- it, it's quite an odd situation, really. He's a very specific player with a very specific skill set. Um, and at the moment, we just don't really have much call for it. Yeah, it's like Liam Neeson. I mean, if you're trying to get revenge on people that kidnapped your daughter, perfect skill set. If you're trying to play a back three, it's just not for him. Um, so, Tim, I mean, r- real quick, and then I'll come to you on this as well, Paul. But, I, you know, I look at it this way. Arsene Wenger is never going to be Pep Guardiola. He's never going to be Antonio Conte. He's never going to be Pochettino. He's never going to be Klopp. He's never going to be a tactical master. Um, he likes to have a, a big collection of, of prodigious attacking talents, and he likes to put them out there and let them go do their thing. I mean, is there a part of you that says, look, I don't know how great this squad is, and I don't know how great we are tactically, but Lacazette, Ozo, and Alexis are spectacular players, and mm. if you put them all on the pitch together and let them do their thing, there's always a chance it'll work out. How important is it for the manager to get those three fucking players on the pitch together? Yeah, yeah, very, very. And that's why, um, you know, I wrote about this last week. That's why I, I really think we should give the kind of the Christmas tree formation a try and have that three in midfield. Um, and, one of, and you know, just shift that one deck chair, basically. Shift that one centre half out and put it in put it in a defensive midfield position. Um, but part of my attraction that was like I say I, I like the way our front three is set out I like those two inside forwards with Lacazette up front I think that works really well and I think another way that works really well is if we want to press from the front um, because that's kind of harder to do when you have two wide forwards like wing forwards because they have to come in whereas those those two kind of inside forward almost number 10 roles they're already facing you know you put Ozil, Alexis, Lacazette in formation and they're perfectly matched up with a back three so that kind of that really starts off like a a pressing game quite nicely Um, and it's kind of helps us to disrupt other teams and I I think that works pretty well and you saw it work against Bournemouth you know you drop one of those players out and put Welbeck in who to my to my mind is the best uh, pressing player that we have and it just it just creates that kind of natural shape. And I, I think it just suits all three of those forwards, um, those those forward positions. I, I slightly prefer that than mm-hmm. the kind of front three where we have two wide forwards coming in. I, I like those those inside forwards working in the half spaces. And yeah, I, I, th- I think that front three matches up with, uh, with anything in the Premier League, quite frankly. Um, and you know, while we've got Ozil and Alexis, let's let's juice them for all they have. Yes, yes, please. I mean, look. Ultimately, we know Alexis <coughs> likes to play the Hollywood ball, the killer ball. He doesn't want to just exchange passes. He wants to beat a man and another man, another man, and play a ball in behind, or he wants to run in behind. And I think Lacazette is exactly what he's been crying out for, much the way Ozil has been. And the three of them together really feel like a fit. Um, you know, adding Lacazette to that group also is another finisher in there, whereas before we were maybe playing, you know, when it was a Wobie and Ozil and Alexis, that had the right creativity, but really only one finisher. Um, and so there's there's a huge opportunity to, to start to build an understanding between those players with what could be the most devastating or one of the more devastating front threes in, in the game, and yet uh, in, the, in the Premier League, not in the game, but you know what I mean, in a game, um, 
But I don't think we're going to see it. And Paul, you know, I tweeted this before the Europa League game. I thought he'd start Alexis because I think it's Arsene Wenger shenanigans. I think he wants an excuse not to start him at Stamford Bridge, that he wants to keep Welbeck in there, that he wants to keep Lacazette in there, that he doesn't have a way to play Ozil, Lacazette, and Alexis with Welbeck, that I don't think he wants to drop Ozil, even though you could argue in the big games that would be the guy to leave out. So do you think that's it? Do you think Alexis now is starting from the bench at Stamford Bridge and he goes back to the Bournemouth team? Yeah, that's my guess. Um, How do you feel about right it? Now, um, well, if this were halfway through the season, it'd be crazy talk. Um, but Alexis is struggling to fi- reach full fitness, and Ozil's in form. And uh, that front three that we played against Bournemouth, I mean, yes, it was just Bournemouth, but that was a very tidy front three. I'm not sure I want to break it up. Um, if you need a goal, I, though, and you're going to need a goal at Stanford Bridge, I mean, Alexis Sanchez yeah. is still your best chance to get a goal, right? I mean, sure, but I think uh, Welbeck uh, didn't he get us two goals? He did. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm not saying he can't. You know. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, uh, but if we, it, what you can't afford to have with Alexis is uh, for him right now to be the the um, the turnover merchant that he is uh, against Chelsea. Um, And I'd much prefer, uh, I think I'd much prefer to see us take the game to them in terms of pressing and driving forward based on the performances we've seen so far. So right at this moment in the season, in a a game or two, at a week or so, when Alexis is his... uh, his chi energy is where it needs to be great, but he's not quite there yet. So, um, uh, you know, I kind of said at the end of the Bournemouth game, does anybody wish we'd played Alexis instead of Welbeck in that game? And now that's, that's a bit of an easy shot. I'm not saying Chelsea's going to pan out that way, but I don't know. I'm, I'd be right now. I'd be so reluctant to take Welbeck out of our front three. Yeah. I mean, I, I see that. I do, and I mean, it's not that I don't see Welbeck's importance. It's just you can't forget what we got from Alexis last season. You can't forget that he is one of the best players in all of world football, and in big games, he you know he is a player who shows up. I thought he dominated Chelsea in the FA Cup final, for what it's worth. Um, yeah, know, but I, he was fully fit, and we can bring get, him on for that. 20 minutes. Well, it was Arsene's decision to start him against Colne. He didn't have to do that. So, I mean, you know, he, he could have brought him in for the last 30 minutes to get him a little sharpness for this game, and... You know, he, he didn't start him against Bournemouth either, so he's easing him back in. But, I mean, at some point, the season has to get off uh, off the starting blocks. And given the bad start we had, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get a lot of do-overs. So, I mean, Tim, I, I guess the question then is, well, first of all, do you think he will stick with the back three for this game? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think the weird thing about having this game on the Thursday is that basically we've given away our starting lineup by yeah. um, virtue of the, the players that didn't play. So, yes, I do. I think, obviously, that's going to be the front three, Welbeck, Lacazette and Ozil. Uh, I'm I'm okay with that at this point for the reasons Paul outlined. I don't think Alexis is quite there yet. Ordinarily, Ozil's the one I'd leave out, not Alexis, but I I don't quite think uh, Alexis is there. I don't think we can underestimate how important Welbeck was in our last two games against Chelsea at Wembley, that kind of press from the front. And um, Chelsea really, really rely on David Luiz to start building their play um, from the back and him finding Fabregas. And 
I think both Lacazette and, and especially Welbeck will be a really, really kind of um, important weapon in trying to stop that, as well as trying point, to yeah. turnovers, which, you know, you look at the front three at Wembley, was it Iwobi, Welbeck and Lacazette? It was built on, you know, pace, mobility, get the ball turned over and let's get them on the back foot. But Welbeck has been absolutely instrumental in our last two games against Chelsea. So, yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to, to keep him in there. Um, I do think he'll stay with the back three. I'd, I, I don't see him changing that now, and you know, certainly not this side of the international break, unless we lose like, well, even if we lose three games in a row, he's not going to change the formation based on losing to Doncaster or Barte Borisov. So, I, I just I don't see it yet. Um, I think he will eventually change it, but I, now, but basically, if he wasn't going to do it after Anfield, I, I don't think he'll do it now for another couple of weeks. So I do think it will be a back three, um, and yeah, the, I I think what the starting lineup will be will be fairly obvious. But I'm I'm quite attracted to the idea actually of just letting Welbeck run his legs off for 65, 70 minutes, um, and then introduce Alexis when the game is. But hope well, perhaps going to be a bit more stretched, a bit more chaotic, and and uh, what what a weapon um, to introduce from the bench. Um, and like you, in the ordinary run of things, I wouldn't dream of leaving Alexis out. But I think it makes sense just because he's not that fit, and Welbeck's playing very very well, and Welbeck has a particular skill set that that Chelsea struggled to deal with. Yeah, I mean, look, I can understand the reason to do it, and yet the thing that aggravates me again is you go out and you get Lacazette, and you look at Ozo, Alexis, and Lacazette, and you think that's a trio that could really work well together. The The qualities seem to mesh. They seem like the kinds of players that could really benefit from having one another on the pitch. He has yet to get them on the pitch together. He has yet to give them the chance to mesh, and we're going to be in the late September probably before we ever see them start the same game together, if even by then. And you just wonder, you know, how... How do you build a squad? How do you prepare a squad? You know, in theory, I would have loved to have seen us start our first game of the season with Ozil, Alexis, and Lacazette up front. I, I realize Alexis's schedule and, and health situation and training and all that made that not a possibility, but we're once again going to be in a situation where we're probably into October before our three best players in the squad have played together, meshed well, and really have an understanding together. And by then, at least domestically, who knows what will be left to fight for? And some of what's left to fight for will be de- determined by what happens in this game. I mean, uh, you win and you're level with Chelsea on points. You're on nine points. You're not cut adrift. You're still right there. You lose and you stay on six. And you, you're starting to lose contact with the top four to some extent. And I realize there's a lot of football still to play. Um, well, what's the alternative, Elliot? I mean, Chelsea are playing without Hazard or have been. Well, I mean, they, they, may, they may be playing with him in this game. I mean, Conte said he's, sure. he's close. So, you know, who knows? No, I mean, the alternative is... That you put Lacazette, Nozel, and Alexis out there, and you say this is these are our best players, and they give us the best chance to win. And Welbeck's Regardless done nothing of wrong. Whether they're fit. Well, look, I don't know that you can do it now that you have played Alexis ninety minutes on a Thursday. You know, I I fully acknowledge that. Um, I don't know that I would have played Alexis ninety but minutes. Most people would have said he's he's not fully fit before Thursday evening. I mean, that would be. Well, it, it kind of depends on what fully fit is, right? I mean, you played part of the Bournemouth game. You could have given him part of the Cone game, and you could have said. You know, he's an incredible player. He's playing. He's fit. Let's get him on the yeah, pitch. Yeah, but there's a difference. We all agree he's an incredible player. Not many of us agree he's practically fully fit. Well, I mean... <sighs> we just don't. 
I, I think we kind of and overrate if, that sort. It's not like he's coming back from a 12-month injury like Welbeck last season who had to be managed fine, back into if, the squad. If you're the manager and your assessment is he's not fully fit, then that's your assessment. Well, you played him for 90 minutes against Cole. I mean, you must think he's fit enough to go out there and start a game and finish it. No, you think 90 minutes against Cole, uh, Cologne will be good for his fitness, and it will. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the, in the, that's kind of very much looking ahead to the because he's got to manage him for you know the whole season, not just not just Chelsea. I mean, th- this is kind of what we've been asking him to do with Sanchez for quite a while. He's he's played another tournament this summer. I know it's only the Confederations Cup, but they got to the final. It's just as many games. Alexis plays every game exactly the same. Yeah, he worked his and balls he off, came yeah. back. He got an injury that disrupted his preseason. He, I watched him play for Chile, and he was absolutely terrible in both games. Like, the worst performances I've ever seen from him. Dreadful. And apparently he was and, fat, um, too. Let's not forget that. Well, yeah. And so I understand why Wenger looked at that and went, right, he wasn't fit anyway. He's gone away to Chile. Chile had two very bad results as well. And, you know, qualification is on the line for them. I completely understand why, why Wenger said, right, okay, perhaps he needs, like, you know, a mini breather. Um, for the sake of managing him for the whole season. I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's what he should have been doing perhaps for the last couple of seasons as well. Uh, and Welbeck's flying. And a yeah, really no doubt. Good no game, no so. question. I don't look. This is not an anti Welbeck. Th- the thing I worry is that this is going to be seen as somehow not rating Welbeck. I adore Welbeck, and we've gone over this on the pod many times. I don't think we've had too many stale performances ever that Welbeck started, and he is a 10 out of 10 footballer if he can get his finishing right. I. I am fine with this. I am not like throwing a fit about it. I, I think my frustration is it's going to be a long time before we see that Ozo Alexis and Lacazette front three get a chance to play together and gel together. And I still think our ability to achieve anything is to some extent dependent on them because that's where the strength in our team is strongest. Um, and we'll see. Look, I think Chelsea are there for the taking. I think they can be beaten. We've, you know, we've beaten them at Wembley twice now. Stanford Bridge is a different proposition. But if we were ever going to get this away to the big club hoodoo off our back, I think this this is a chance to do it. Um, you know, I, I am not saying I'm confident that'll happen, but I think there's an opportunity. Let's let's leave it there. Uh, there will be plenty to discuss after the match, obviously. And, um, you know, I, I just hope we are not standing over the cadaver of another, you know, hate crime here. <laughs> Um, you know, on, on the football pitch that, that got dark really fast because I, I think th- this is a pivot point for the season. We can't have another situation like what happened at Anfield and expect this, this project to go on much longer without just collapsing under the weight of the negativity. At the same point, a good result here or at a minimum, a good performance. And there might be some green shoots or recovery to cling on to. So we'll see. It's, it's, it is a fairly significant moment in the season as all of these big away matches inevitably are. So uh, we'll leave it there. Pause on Twitter. Pause in my pants. Thanks, pause. Pleasure. Yep. Uh, same. And uh, Tim is on Twitter. So, Berto, Tim, glad you survived the uh, war zone at the Emirates. <laughs> Thanks. My pleasure as always. I imagine you will have no such trouble at the uh, luxurious uh, yeah. home of Chelsea football um, because – you're not a minority, so you'll be just fine. Um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In any event, uh, we appreciate you listening. Uh, give us a five-star review. Write nasty stuff about Clive in the comments, as always. Uh, he will be back to discuss the Chelsea game with us as well, we presume, if um, he's not offended by anything we said today. In any event, uh, cheers up the Arsenal. Let's go. Big game away. Three points. We need it. We'll talk to you after. <laughs>